Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies, is my co-host, Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. Stay gold, pony boy. Stay gold. That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1983 coming-of-age drama, The Outsiders. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, this movie is rated PG with a running time of 1 hour and 31 minutes. The Outsiders is based on the 1967 novel of the same name written by S.E. Hinton. So, what is this movie about? What's in the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. A classic story of kids on the outside of society. On the streets of Tulsa in 1966, teenagers come two ways. If you're a soch, you've got it all. Money, cars, a future. But if you're a greaser, you're an outsider with nothing but your friends. And a dream that someday, somehow, you'll finally belong. The Outsiders is Francis Coppola's powerful film of S.E. Hinton's classic youth novel. With lyrical imagery and dramatic intensity, Coppola captures the emotional essence of Hinton's story and shows how it really feels to be caught between childhood's innocence and adulthood's disillusionment. Starring in this story, filled with hopes, fears, bravery, and rebellion, is a cast then on the brink of stardom, a who's who of some of today's most successful and popular young talents. Tom Cruise, Matt Dillon, Emilio Estevez, C. Thomas Howell, Diane Lane, Rob Lowe, and Ralph Macchio. Coppola, while remaining faithful to the spirit of Hinton's novel, imposes a larger-than-life dimension on the characters. The Outsiders takes place in an enchanted moment of time in the lives of all those boys, he says. I wanted to catch that moment. I wanted to take those young street rats and give them heroic proportions. Heroic and unforgettable. Like Rebel Without a Cause, The Outsiders gives us an inside close-up look at the tumult of adolescence. The Outsiders. The Outsiders. So that was What's on the Box. Jason, how are we doing? Are we ready for talk about The Outsiders? I'm really looking forward to this, Bill Bant. I'm so glad I rewatched this. It had been way, way too long, and it always comes up in popular culture one way or another for good reason. Yeah, I'm ready to get into this 1983 film with you. Are you ready, Bill Bant? Yep, same here. Not watched this in a long time, so it's the... Nice revisit. So let's get into our earliest memories. What do you have, Jason? Well, Bill Bant, this is going to be a huge surprise, but I don't have anything for earliest memories for this film outside of the recalled imagery. I remember this film being in the playground slash kids on the block conversation because of its cast loaded with up and coming stars, but it definitely came to my consciousness retroactively. I did not see this in the theaters. I have a feeling I saw it on cable in the late 80s after being aware of how the young cast had established themselves already as movie stars. It's nothing short of amazing how each of these actors had significant hits within a handful of years afterward. Seven actors that we will name regularly through this podcast. For myself, when I finally saw The Outsiders in the late 80s, I already knew Tom Cruise from Top Gun. I knew Pat Swayze from Red Dawn, Dirty Dancing, Roadhouse. I knew Emilio Estevez from Breakfast Club and St. Elmo's Fire and Young Guns. I probably knew Matt Dillon from The Flamingo Kid. I knew Ralph Macchio from The Karate Kid and C. Thomas Howell from Red Dawn, The Hitcher, maybe Soul Man too. And I knew Rob Lowe from St. Elmo's Fire, Young Blood, About Last Night, of course. 
And even if I hadn't seen any of those films, I would have known these gentlemen from their presence in pop culture and from magazines as heartthrob poster boys. It's absolutely insane how Francis Ford Coppola had such an eye for talent and basically discovered these actors and grouped them all together at that time in the early, early 80s. I wonder about the guys that auditioned that were on the bubble and didn't make the cut for this film, which we'll get to later. Now, I don't want to forget that Diane Lane was, of course, in this movie. And for whatever reason, and it's surprising to me that she was not on my radar really in the 80s. And on top of that, I was aware of Francis Ford Coppola, of course, but his direction was not a memory I have attached to this film either. Outside of that obvious commentary on the cast, my memories of this film are only the images of the young stars as the greasers. I do recall the rumble, the rumble fight. I recall looking for Tom Cruise and knowing he wasn't in the movie all that much, but it was memorable, of course, because of character names such as Pony Boy and Soda Pop. It was memorable because of the tragedy in the film and it immediately attained that cult status because it wasn't a huge hit, but... You know, it didn't have a rep as like the best film ever, but it just had all the ingredients that made it very attractive. I have those memories of people over the years always saying, oh, The Outsiders? Oh, yeah, man. It's great. You got to see The Outsiders. But honestly, my vague memory is that this movie was ultimately just okay. And I was very interested to see what my reaction to this Coppola film would be today. What are your earliest memories, Bill Bat? For me, I first saw the book at my local library the Bushrod Library on Castor Avenue. However, I don't remember if I checked out the book at the time or if I have read it. So doing the research for this podcast and learning more about the book, I'm going to go with a no, but was it possible I pulled a watch the movie and did a book report on it for school? Possible, but I'm not 100% (laughs) sure. Love it. Yep. So the first time... I saw The Outsiders was on cable, but it was far into the movie because I was just kind of flipping through just to see what was on. And it was the scene with Johnny, Ralph Macchio, in the hospital. And that seemed certainly left a mark on me because here's a kid lying in a hospital bed and he's wheezing and he looks like he's got burn marks all over him. So I have no idea what's going on, but that's a pretty frightening image. So when I eventually saw it, I know it was sometime between when Red Dawn came out and before Top Gun was released, because I don't remember Tom Cruise being in the movie, but I certainly remember Swayze and C. Thomas Howell and even Darren Dalton, because they were all in Red Dawn together. I think I was surprised watching it from the get-go and seeing C. Thomas Howe with the brown hair, because when I saw him in that one clip, he had blonde hair. So wait, was that the same movie I watched before? So that definitely threw me. No, I didn't recognize uh, William Smith, who was also in Red Dawn. Hey, whatever. I certainly remember the sneaking into the drive-in scene and Matt Dillon's death as Dallas or Dally. Yeah, that I remember. I honestly didn't remember the rumble. I mean, I knew what happened, but I couldn't remember how that went down. Um, So there really wasn't that much I remembered. And I think that's the only time I ever saw it from beginning to end was that one time. And every once in a while, I would just catch bits and pieces here and there. So this is really the first time I've seen it since then. And I'll get into what version all the way through I did end up seeing. Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. This film... It's still in the conversation. It will still come up from time to time. I mean, I hear it mentioned on different podcasts and in movie discussions with friends. 
from time to time just because it has that star power. I mean, this is where a lot of their careers began or where they were, you know, they had, they got some notice or notoriety and and it's great. It's great to go back to and, and see the beginnings. Yeah, and especially now it's celebrating its 40th anniversary and you mentioned in your initial thoughts just the cast itself. I mean, what other movie can you really think of that someone just put a cast together like that where everyone moved on to do something else? Yeah. Yes, there's other been other casts where they've moved on, but the amount of people in this movie that moved on to bigger and better things, if they tried to make that movie today when they were all at that peak, I mean, just the salary budget alone, you could never get it done. Yeah, no doubt about it. It was such an insane crop of talent at that time. And we'll get into it later, no doubt, in our research. But even the actors that didn't make the cut would go on to big careers. I mean, that's how many great actors were auditioning at the time that were on the scene at the time, whether in Los Angeles or New York City or somewhere in between. You hear the stories and you can listen to the interviews and and look at the research on this and you're just like, it's fun to imagine yourself at that time or being a fly on the wall during the casting process just to see everybody in the same room together. It's pretty cool. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to our initial thoughts. What are some of our initial thoughts of The Outsiders? Absolutely. Let's get into this, baby. I'm going to start with the trailer because I hadn't seen this in so long. I was like, I need a little taste. And so I watched the trailer and I was cracking up. One, because, well, I mean, it's great. I love the uh, dramatic orchestral music, but the trailer is literally of our main protagonist greasers just walking down the street. And if you haven't seen the film in a long time, it's a bit out of context. You don't know where they're going, but you can tell that these gentlemen, these greasers, maybe not so gentle, a little rough around the edges, are best of friends. They're they're family. They're, they're buddies. And they're a tight-knit group. They're close. And you hear the voiceover come over and the voiceover is listing off the characters one by one. And I just cracked up because you then see like a close up clip shot of one of the guys. And so it'll be Pony Boy and you'll see see Thomas Howell and then you'll be Soda Pop and you see Rob Lowe and then Two Bit and you see Emilio Estevez and then Bob. <laughs> I just crack up because you have the, the voiceover that has that great intonation, that great pitch, the tone of voice. And it goes from Pony Boy, Soda Pop, Two Bit, Bob. <laughs> and uh, what I love the most, though, is Tom Cruise. Because, again, you're taking this scene out of context, and you see these guys walking down the street, and they're buddy, they're greasers, they're looking good, and they're feeling good. And Tom Cruise is just completely jacked up, like he's down to six-pack of Mountain Dew. He's, like, jumping all over the place. He's all over the guys. I'm like, why is Tom Cruise bouncing off the walls? Anyway, the trailer's great. It's hilarious. It's very dramatic. The Outsiders. So the film starts, great title card with the Outsiders scrolling sideways across the screen. Uh, We open with a Stevie Wonder tune. Uh, We get the imagery of the train tracks. I mean, it's iconic with these coming of age films. And because it's all about being on the wrong side of the tracks, or in some instances, the right side of the tracks. And it's very common in these 80s coming of age stories. And in this particular film, it's impactful because the train tracks do have a bit of a double meaning. And the credits of this film are a little over three minutes, Bill Banch. You don't get that anymore. So I was just thinking about how old are these guys in this movie? Patrick Swayze is 31. Uh, Leif Garrett is also in this film. He's 22. Machio's 22. Dylan is 19. Howell is 17. Rob Lowe is 19. Tom Cruise and Estevez are both 21. And Diane Lane was only 18. And I was just thinking Swayze is 31, but he looks amazing and looks very young. 
But the other guys are still within range of teenage age. They look age appropriate. So, and I realized, man, that this is like 1965, 66, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where it takes place. But immediately while watching Dallas and Pony Boy and Johnny walking around just looking for shit to get into, that's just the way it was back then. And, and I'm not saying it was exactly the same in the 1980s, but for us, it man, it reminded me of a simpler time when you just had to go outside with your friends and find stuff to do. You walk around, you go to the park, you go to the lot, you ride your bikes, you go to the movies, you go to a local diner. That's what you did. And that's also how you got in trouble sometimes, as these guys do. So again, a lot different in the 80s. And I was certainly not a greaser, but I just, it brought me back to uh, the age of simpler times when before uh, technology kind of came into play, which it did very much so then in the 80s. Skipping to now more initial thoughts, I was just cracking up because we get to a great drive-in theater scene, uh, which I will definitely get into later. But they are kind of there's a panning shot like a, of all the cars at the theater. It's just great. And you get the classic cars from that era of the 60s. And it's just, you know, it's a very romantic time in certain aspects. And you get the girls in their skirts and they, they show a shot of a, a car and there's guys bringing their young dates to it. And it's all very romantic. And they pop open the trunk and two girls pop out. I'm like, what the hell did awesome. they sneak the girls off to the drive-in? And they snuck them in the trunk. Wow, that couldn't have been comfortable, but it was funny. Uh, I love seeing a, a young Emilio Estevez also in that drive-in scene because he's, to me, showing his Billy the Kid colors, his antics, and his laugh is unmistakable. I'm like, oh my God, so Billy the Kid. Yeah, love me some Emilio. Man, Diane Lane, what a beauty. Again, I missed out on her a lot of her 80s films, and it was great to see a young Diane Lane in this film. She's gorgeous. But more than that, she is clearly a solid actress. It's obvious. And she's mature. I love the way she speaks in this. Her voice, it's something about her voice in a certain cadence. Anyway, she's great. I was watching, you know, Johnny and Ponyboy in the same sequence, the drive-in theater sequence. And Johnny, a.k.a. Ralph Macchio, is supposed to be 16. And Ponyboy, C. Thomas Howell, is only 14. Wow. I could have sworn it was the opposite. Because Ralph Macchio looks like he's 10 years old. Oh, yeah. And he's actually 22 in real life, which is crazy. Now, you know, well, we got some great character establishment in that scene. But I love that stuff. It's very clear and understood, especially in that particular scene. Again, I'll get into it later. But it may not be as subtle and maybe playing up stereotypes in this film. But it all feels pretty real to me. The location and production design is great. More importantly... For me, it's the dynamic and energy shared between the main cast of actors. They're believable as friends and family. It seems that it's all real. It sometimes comes from how they walk and talk and circle around each other, sit close to one another, or playfully wrestle. A lot of the connection is in the choreography in the scenes. Characters seem to always be close, like they're close proximity. You've got Ponyboy and Johnny like leaning up on each other, putting a head on one's shoulder. And there's a physicality and energy that's palpable and always present, which I love in this we get a lot of subtle and simple like character building lines. I appreciate the writing, you know, after the horrific scene where Johnny has murdered the Soch Bob, who was Cherry's boyfriend. I mean, Pony Boy wakes up and sees the blood and gets sick. He's thrown up and Johnny says, go ahead, man. I ain't going to look at you. And it's that's such a simple, like almost throwaway line, but it's that tough guy machismo image of these guys that they had to live up to and provide. It's just... I love, there's some, a lot of subtlety in the writing that I liked and some not so subtle. It's all good to me. Uh, 
You can see Coppola's directorial style in this film, the choice of shots and camera angles. I appreciated that, like the blood in the water, for instance, in the uh, murder sequence when the Soch gets killed by Johnny while Ponyboy is being drowned. And there's a great shot of Johnny in uh, the foreground with the dead Soch in the background. That's Bob. And they're both in focus. It's not a rack focus. It's not a depth of field sort of thing. It's just a, it, it's a really cool shot. There's a lot of slow camera push-ins on the two shots and on the relationship scenes between greasers. There's even a Dutch tilt later on of Dallas and Ponyboy walking through the hospital uh, hallway after the rumble. So many things about this. The fact that, I, here's an initial thought, there's no parents in this movie. It's great. There's no parents. The only adults we see are working in some form of a day job or professional capacity. Here's an initial thought. Swayze's ripped, and Patrick Swayze, dude, that dude is in great shape, and he looks exactly the same from 1983 to 1989. For like six yes. years, he looks exactly the same. Like nothing changes about that dude. Love me some Pat Swayze. Again, back to the writing. There's just some great lines like, so what did the super soch have to say? He and his soch, just a guy that wanted to talk, that's all. Or uh, lines like, can you see the sunset from the south side? Very good. Cherry says, yeah, real good. Ponyboy responds, you can see it from the north side too. All that stuff, again, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle, but the fact is they're all human beings. They're all dealing with the same things and seeing the same things. It's just a difference of status and class separation. So finally, I'm, as we all are, a sucker for a Band of Brothers movie. I don't know if it's because as an adult watching this, I have a sense of history with these actors, but even though some have very minor roles, you get such a sense of camaraderie and love. Any film of guys or a, gr- a group of guys bonded by family, friendship or war or corporate uprising or rumbles or sport or simply loss or achievement of any kind. When you see people bonded so intimately because they've shared time and experience and so much life together that they would die for one another. And don't get me wrong. There's a lot of toxic masculinity, in this, but sometimes that's necessary to survive. And sometimes that masculinity is just bravado, insecurity, bullshit, but inevitably because of the circumstances, there are, Moments of real vulnerability, which is where the true connection happens. And I want to be part of that. That's my point here is that connection. It's almost like I'm borderline jealous of it. I saw it in The Godfather, directed by Coppola. I saw it in the Band of Brothers television series. And I recently saw it in a show I liked a lot called The Last Kingdom, where I just want to feel that, the camaraderie, the bonding. And that's why we love movies like this that portray bonds so well. And thus, I'm completely connected to the characters and the relationships. This movie is not perfect, but it still got to me. And it definitely sets the stage for films to come. It wasn't the first film of its kind. Obviously, I mentioned in What's on the Box, Rebel Without a Cause. And then later on, this made me think of families and brotherhoods dealing with gang violence. Two obvious ones that came to mind were Boys in the Hood and Menace to Society. So yeah, the film is rough around the edges in in parts, but there's clear characters real sense of bonding, a sense of impending doom and real tragedy. And in the end, real message that's resounding. And I can feel it. The film works for me. I got choked up twice watching it today. Uh, Once when Johnny was in the hospital talking, you know, you kind of mentioned that early memory, Bill. And then uh, Stay Gold, Johnny, of course. That one gets me. This movie works for me overall. What? How about you, Bill Bant? Some initial thoughts? Yes. So for me, initial thoughts, and I have to apologize because as I said in the beginning of the intro that this movie was 91 minutes long and friend of ours we mentioned on the podcast plenty of times marwan 
was giving away all his DVDs because it was like he doesn't want DVDs anymore. And he had a copy of The Outsiders. I'm like, oh, cool. I'll take that from you if you're going to give it away. So, of course, when I popped the movie in to watch it, and I've had this movie now for three, four years, and I've not watched it since I borrowed it. I'm like, why is this movie an hour and 54 minutes? What's going on? Did I put it in the wrong disc or something? So I ended up accidentally watching The Outsiders, the complete novel. Usually when we're trying to do this podcast, we're trying to do the version that we watched in the 80s. So if I step on something that you're like, what are you talking about? Right. It's probably from the complete novel. I'll try to, I had to do the research to see what was in, what was out, because I haven't seen this movie forever myself. So I couldn't even remember, like, is that new? Is that not new? Um, one of my initial thoughts was because of this cast, you're just so excited to see early roles of people that technically before they made it big. And... I really forgot this movie really focuses on three actors, yeah, which is yeah. C. Thomas Howe's Pony Boy, Ralph Macchio as Johnny, and Matt Dillon as Dally or Dallas. And in a way that almost kind of disappointed me because I wanted to see everyone else, what their stories were. Because we learned about Pony Boy has two older brothers, Soda Pop, which is Rob Lowe, and then his oldest brother, who's basically taking care of them, is uh, Darry or Daryl, played by Patrick Swayze. And we find out that Soda Pop dropped out of school to work at a gas station. Why did he do that? Mm -hmm. What is his life like dropping out of school? You know, he works at the gas station with 2-Bit, which is Emilio Estevez. I kind of wanted to see some of their actions, what, what a typical day for them is like. And I kind of wanted to see more of that dynamic. We don't really see any adults. In the version I saw, we do see Johnny's mom very briefly because mm -hmm. she wants to come visit in the hospital. And Johnny's like, no, I don't want to see my mom because there's a scene earlier in the movie where he talks about all his parents do his fight and he goes to go home and he won't go in the house because he hears his parents fighting. Yeah, you literally only see shadows. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you see shadows. And then when the mom shows up at the hospital, she gets upset because she sees that 2-Bit and Pony Boy can go in, but she can't. And then 2-Bit... Emil Estevez just rips her new one right there in the in the hospital, saying you never cared about him before. Why are you pretending you care about him now? Yeah, which is not in the ninety one minute cut. Okay, so that is not in there. Okay, yeah, but is it? I I wish it were though. I'm glad that they put that in the extended cut because that reinforces again the connection that these guys have. You know. Anyway, mm -hmm. keep going, please. Yeah, and and like I said, I apologize if I talked about something that's not in the theatrical version. I going to try to keep it that way when we're talking about this movie and then I'll, I'll mention some of the elements from the the complete novel at the end just so you can see what you're missing because it is it is over 20 minutes of additional stuff and a lot of it's in the beginning a lot of it's in the end there's a little bit intertwined in the middle so yeah i was kind of disappointed that there, you don't really learn that much more about all the guys so in that way i felt a little disconnected i thought the locations were great it definitely had a great feel to it. Like I felt like I was in that period of time and understanding what these guys had to go through day to day, how their life was just by their environment. Like Ralph Macchio, he's one of the three that's got to carry this movie. And I don't know, he just didn't do it for me. Mm -hmm. Kudos to him. He found you know, the Karate Kid role, and that's the role of a lifetime, and that's who, what he's going to be known for, and that's what pays his bills, and that's great, and that just fits him perfectly. But as Johnny, I don't know, it, it just didn't do it for me. Like, his scenes in his hospital, I thought he did really well in. That stuff, I thought was great, and I felt for him in, in that moment. But I guess when you see all the people that are in the film, and it's like, 
uh, Ralph Macchio and C. Thomas Howley are one and two. I'd rather be Patrick Swayze, mm, Rob yeah. Lowe, or Patrick Swayze, Tom Cruise, even though Tom Cruise was still kind of finding his footing at that point, too. It's funny you're talking about the wild energy. All I can think of is we don't see that again until he's on Oprah's couch jumping around. <laughs> that He's been that crazy again. So this movie celebrating his 40th anniversary. A lot of people consider it a classic. Doing the research and reading a lot of the reviews, everybody was kind of on the middle of the road on it. And I usually do that work after I watch the movie because I kind of felt like an emptiness after I saw it. And then reading what they were saying, I was like, there was just something missing to it. This is definitely, I got to read the book. Mm -hmm. I think there's just something missing in the book that just didn't transfer to the screen. I really want to know what that is now after watching this. The hooks for this movie are the cast. I know you were mentioning about Francis Ford Coppola's direction. I thought there were some choices he made that seemed odd to me mm -hmm. that didn't quite resonate. I know like he was trying to mimic some of the Gone with the Wind and that's when even when I was watching it, I was kind of like, this shot feels like it's from Gone with the Wind. And then afterwards, I read that like, he was trying to copy that. And I was like, why would you want to try to, to mimic that? They had their own struggles, portray their struggles. Don't, I don't know, just don't put this like rosy light on it. I know I'm kind of knocking it, but overall, I still did like the movie. And like I said, even though I watched the complete novel, I almost felt like I need it more on top of that too. I'm like, this needs to be almost like a two and a half hour movie just because there's just so many characters. I really totally know about. Totally agree. About it. I even wanted to know more about the Sosas. And I understand, you know, it's from the Greaser's point of view, but I think it would have helped. They didn't seem villainous enough to me. And... I don't know. Yeah, let's just get into it with uh, some of our favorite scenes and moments, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And before we do that, I just wanted to say, I think I almost completely agree with everything you said. And touching on Coppola's direction, I totally get it. Some of the shots are distracting. I just thought they were kind of cool. It's like, here's a director that's taking some chances and trying some things. Maybe it's not appropriate for the film, and maybe you shouldn't have taken those chances, depending on your artistic taste, but I can see that 100%. Going back to the cast, I thought you made a great point. I couldn't agree more about the fact that knowing what we know now about these actors and how huge they became, and I am a fan of each and every one of them, that it's hard not to want to see more of each of them in the film and want to know more of their backstory. And now having had been there in 1983 in a movie theater watching it, it probably would have been a bit different. However, a lot of what you're saying also I'm going to address in my complaints, just to step on that real quick, because that's where the emptiness comes in. The empty feeling at the end is there's a couple of levels that I wanted to reach in this film that I didn't quite get to either. I really enjoyed this film overall, no question about it, for the camaraderie between the young men in this film and the message that it portrays in the end uh, resonated with me. However... I wanted to see a little bit. And so I was trying to whittle it down because there's so much story that you are correct. It could be a three hour film. I'm thinking this could be actually be built out into a limited series going back into how did this town become so black and white between socias and greasers. So, I mean, I'm, I've been working on a, a story myself where there's a similar thing where there's a line drawn in the sand between two different groups of people that have just very specific beliefs and, Somehow they have to exist together in the same town. But how did it come to be? How did it come to be like that? Also, like you touched upon with the, you know, specifically our two, you know, two of the three protagonists being Pony Boy and Johnny, I thought 
both C. Thomas Howell's and Ralph Macchio's performances were in and out throughout the film. I thought they had good moments, and I thought they had some very raw moments as very young actors, and they were just unpolished. And then Mm -hmm. some moments really rang true. Now, I thought Matt Dillon, as Dallas, was pretty much the most consistent of the three main guys, the the stories that we're, we're following. But it's, you know, they're they're really young. So I agree with, I think, pretty much, yeah, everything you said. But uh, we'll get into it more later. So I just wanted to touch upon your points. And Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of weight that C. Thomas Hell and Ralph Macchio have to carry in yeah, this film. Yeah, no question. Sometimes I, I just felt like they weren't put in the right frame or right light in order to help them portray those characters correctly. And also it's fun to think about too, and we'll get into this into the fun facts and trivia segment is the fact that it's well known how the casting process went. And a lot of these gentlemen were reading for each other's roles at different points throughout the process. And it would be, it's interesting to think, well, what if Macchio and Howell had flip-flopped or if someone else had portrayed that particular part but that changes the story. I mean, they, they're trying to stick to a novel as well. And I totally agree. Right. I think even because my complaints aren't even necessarily addressed in the extended cut, because I think, yeah, you can add, you can put a lot more into even the novel itself, in my humble opinion. But I still have a lot of respect for a young teenager who wrote a great book. Yes. All right. So let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What do you have for favorite scenes or moments, Jason? Absolutely. Well, I got to start with the drive-in, man. That's a scene that happens very early in the film, and I absolutely love this. It was so much fun. It sets the stage. There's some great character development. It's a great way to get in to the character development and establish uh, some character background. But the setting's great. I recall the drive-in movie theater when I was young. They died out, sadly, but they still exist here and there. It's a little bit spotty. You can still find them, but there's a still romantic nature to it all. It was always a great date scene. And in this film, we get Diane Lane as Cherry Valance, Cherry Sherry Valance. She's nicknamed Cherry because she has cherry red hair. And she's with her best friend, Marsha. And they have escaped their drunk boyfriends, their Soch boyfriends, Bob and Randy. And so at the drive-in, they uh, decide to go to the back area, which I don't recall there being. I didn't know there was a back area, but obviously was, which in kind of towards the rear behind all the, the rows of cars, there's a, a little area with chairs near a concession stand. And that's where they happen to sit. And they sit directly in front of our greaser protagonists, Dallas, Ponyboy, and Johnny. And Dallas immediately goes into aggressive bully flirting mode, lighting a cigarette and asking Cherry if she's a real redhead. And he gets a little too close and she thinks it's funny at first, but then quickly begins thwarting his obnoxious advances. And you get the younger pony and Johnny trying to get him to back down. But of course, Dallas just keeps trying. And she finally has to yell at him, get lost, hood. I love it. And finally, Dallas does leave and Cherry starts a conversation with Ponyboy and they get to know one another through introductions, talking about Soda Pop, his older brother. And we learn that Pony and Soda Pop and their older, older brother, as Bill mentioned, Derry or Daryl, had lost their parents. And then the girls ask Pony and Johnny to join them. And it's funny because Pony and Johnny actually still defend Dallas, who is a complete dick just moments earlier. But there's real loyalty here. I love that kind of character establishment. And Cherry and uh, Pony go to get more soda. 
and popcorn. And we learn that uh, Johnny had gotten beat up by a Soch with three rings on his hand. And that happens to be Bob, we learn, who was Cherry's boyfriend. Cherry's telling Pony Boy that the South Side Soches don't have it uh, that easy in here in Tulsa, Oklahoma either. And after the dine, uh, the, the drive-in movie, the greasers, now including Two-Bit and Pony Boy and Johnny, walk Cherry and Marsha out. But of course, the boyfriends, Bob and Randy, the Soches, catch up to them in their Mustang, and the Soches aren't too keen on the girls hanging out with the greasers. We think a fight's about to happen, a little mini-rumble. Two-Bit doesn't even hesitate. Emilio Estevez immediately smashes a bottle on the fence and whips around, whipping out his switchblade. It's pretty quick, actually. He's just literally two-bit on the spot. And uh, Cherry stops the fight and says she'll go with the Soches. She takes a little sidebar with Pony and tells him if she sees him in school, don't take it personally if I don't say hi. It's kind of brutal, but I love that character of Cherry. She's really open, just kind of honest, and says it how it is. And I believe there's a callback to that in the extended cut, if I'm not mistaken, but it's not in the 91 minute version. But there's a line she says here that I absolutely adore because Dallas, that being Matt Dillon, you know, was such a jerk to her. And she says here at the end of the scene, I hope I never see Dallas Winston again. If I do, I'd probably fall in love with him. What a great line. What a great line from Cherry. Absolutely love that. And then she leaves with the Soshas. So I love the dialogue in here. I love how they cross-talk in the scene. It's very natural. They're kind of talking over one another. Dylan, as Dallas, has a way of stumbling and mumbling through his dialogue, which is kind of natural. Sometimes it's hard to understand, but I like his delivery. The dynamic between Diane Lane and these guys is really great. It's a great way to get introduced to our protagonist without being too forced. And we just know exactly who these guys are. Dallas is the leader. He's hot-tempered, angry, aggressive. He's a bully. He's spent time in jail. Bit of a prick, but he's extremely loyal. We see that Pony Boy is the troubled kid with a heart of gold. We see that Johnny, Ralph Macchio, is timid and extremely damaged. We learn that Cherry is kind of the bridge between these two worlds. That's what I like about her character as well, is that she sort of is the go-between in a way. She's a, a soch by her family's income status, but she doesn't really fit the stereotype. She doesn't care as much about the class separation. She's aware of it. She has to accept it, but she doesn't like it. And she can stand up for herself. And I wanted to see more of Cherry in this film, getting to that later. But thought it was a great, great scene and introduction to our protagonists. The dine, I keep saying dine, drive-in, drive-in theater scene, which I usually say, uh, mistakenly say drive-through, not drive-in. Right. I just There's can't. I can't. I just later. have a. <laughs> I just have a problem saying drive-in for some reason. Anyway, great scene. Oh, Jason, I hate the scene because I, I like the scene <laughs> because it makes me so uncomfortable. Oh, sure. Because yeah, I, I get that. feel like Johnny watching this scene because I know throughout my life I've been in those situations where you got that friend who's just being a fucking asshole. And you're just like, dude, if you don't knock it off. I'm going to punch you myself. Yeah. And I cannot tolerate that kind of behavior towards someone. So in that sense, it really bothered me. And that is one of Ralph Macchio's moments where he shines. Cause I'm just like, yep, that was me. That was me telling him, knock it off, leave her alone. And I don't care if you're going to kick my ass. I need you to stop it. It's driving me up the wall. And then the fact when she says, I hope I don't run again. Cause I'm going to fall in love with him. That's even more of a gut punch too. Oh Yeah. Because you see that happen too, and you're like, yep, good guys. Finish last. Yep, finish last. And that's a prime example of it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because 
Dallas, if I didn't make it clear, which I don't know if I did, he really is a prick too. And we've seen guys like that. We, you, at some point in our youth, when you come across a bully of that kind, especially when they they really feel like they have to prove something either to themselves or to the guys next to them, like in the scene when they're sitting behind the girls, Dallas is really getting up in Cherry's business. He's touching her hair. He's putting his face next to hers. He's making innuendos. He's pretending to ash his cigarette on her head. He's kicking his feet up next to her, like really getting in her personal space and making the scene awkward for everyone. And he's relentless. And we know that guy that just won't back down. And there's nothing cool about it. Nothing cool about no. it. And in the end, you're just thinking, why do you think this is going to fucking work? Right. And the sad, sad fact of it is that some of the time it does. Because as she said, it's a brutal line when she says, I hope I never see him again because I'll probably fall in love with him because there's those girls. And what I love about her is that she knows that about herself, Mm -hmm. that she is attracted to the bad guy. She likes the bad boy. And they're just, that is a thing. It's it's been a thing from the beginning of time and it always probably will be. And it sucks when you are Johnny, when you're Bill Bant, when you're Jason Masick, whom uh, at least I like to think I was the nice guy to watch that unfold and go, are you effing kidding me? You're going to go for that guy, the guy you were just complaining about and you told to get lost. And that's the one you're going to fall for. Mm-hmm. Okay. <sighs> so yeah, that's why I could not put in my favorite scenes is because it just emotionally, I felt like it drugged me through the mud. There's a lot of uncomfortable moments when Dallas is present. And that's a credit to Matt Dillon as well in his oh, yeah. performance. He really nails the character. And I like his storyline in this film. But I also like the character establishment throughout the rest of the scene and meeting Tubit in the scene as well. Emilio Estevez's antics throughout. And uh, we just get some very quick, succinct background and establishment of these characters. Like, oh, yeah, I know exactly who these guys are and where they and what their relationship is to one another and what kind of the hierarchy is even within the small group of greasers. Yeah. And I think the thing that even hopefully I don't step on favorite scenes later on is when Johnny and pony boy do get in some serious trouble, they do go to Dally and Dally helps them out. That's in my favorite. Okay. Scenes. Absolutely. All right. So before you get to that, I'll get to my first favorite scene. And, and that's when Johnny kills Rob in the playground. Sure. Yeah. And you mentioned this a little bit before in your initial thoughts. So after the scene, Jason just talked about, so let's just pick up Cherry. They take off. Johnny and 2-Bit, Emilio Estevez and Ponyboy, they go home. They get to Johnny's house. Johnny hears that his parents are fighting, so he doesn't want to go in. So he goes out to a lot that's not too far from the house, starts a fire, and then him and Ponyboy are kind of hanging out and just kind of talking. And then eventually Ponyboy and Johnny fall asleep, and they wake up, and it's like 2 in the morning. And Ponyboy's like, oh, my God, I got to get home. My brother's going to kill me because he feels like his older brother, Jerry. So Darry Patrick Swayze, he feels like Darry's been on him this whole time since his parents passed away. He feels like they're not connecting. So he knows when he gets home, he's in deep shit. So Ponyboy goes home, and Darry and Soda Pop are up waiting for him. Darry starts yelling at Ponyboy, where the hell have you been? I can't call the police because here I am, I'm 20 years old, I'm trying to take care of you. The police will take you away to child services. I'm super worried. You can't pull that crap. And Ponyboy's like, hey, I'm, I'm all right. Just leave me alone. Darry pushes him. A little too aggressively, Pony Boy gets up and takes off, wakes up Johnny, who fell back asleep in the lot, and they start walking away. So they're walking to the playground, and 
The Sosage, who we saw at the end of the drive-in scene, are driving around the neighborhood. They see the two of them. They pull up. About five of them get out of the car. They're basically just trying to start trouble. Of course, being a greaser, you got to stand up for your manhood. And words are exchanged. Pony Boy spits on one of the Sosas. They go after him. They knock Johnny down. And basically, the five guys grab Pony Boy. And in the middle of the playground, there's this huge fountain. And they keep dunking him in the fountain. And they're keeping him under there a long time. Mm-hmm. They could possibly kill him. And then we see Johnny comes to and sees that this is going on. And as you mentioned, too, one of these boys is the one that gave Johnny that scar on his face. And Johnny pulls out his blade and it cuts to them literally dunking. You see Pony Boy under the water. So you don't see what Johnny does. But all of a sudden you start seeing blood. Yeah. And then next thing you know, we cut to Pony Boy, who's unconscious, coming to, and he has no idea what has happened. The first thing he sees is Rob lying there, all bled out. And that's when Johnny tells him, I killed him. And he's literally leaning against the fountain, squeezing the life out of the blade that he has in his hand. And you see the blood on it. And you don't know how long he's been sitting there like that. You don't know how long... Pony Boy's been out. You can see by the amount of blood, Rod's been laying there for a while, dead. And now Pony Boy's just trying to get the facts, like, what the hell happened? Where's the other guys? And you find out they took off. Now, as you mentioned earlier, Pony Boy gets up. He sees the dead body. He starts throwing up. And now they don't know what to do. Because, you know, you've got a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old. One of them just killed somebody. And they're going to get found out about it. they got four witnesses. They don't know what to do. And then that's when they run to Dally. Yeah. That's my first favorite scene because it really does set up the next two acts of the movie. Yeah. I mean, you can really call that the inciting moment is is what sets off the chain of events. It's the catalyst. It's one of those scenes where it's the, I had mentioned an impending sense of doom, but there's a sense of dread in this film. I think partially because I recalled (laughs) in the back of my mind somewhere what had happened in this movie having seen it before, but also as soon as Johnny goes for the blade in his back pocket, while the Soches are dunking pony boy in the fountain, you're like, this is going to end badly. This is going to end badly because Johnny wants to get his revenge and is full of fear and hatred and anger toward Bob, the Soche that beat him up sometime prior that we didn't see, but we know it was Bob. And Johnny's fiercely loyal to Pony Boy. You can sense their connection, and he's going to do what he can to defend Pony Boy's life. And you're like, "Oh shit, here we go. Something bad's going to happen now." Yeah, it's a it's an effective scene, and I think this is one of the artistic shot choices that works. And you called it out. The Soches weren't going to kill Pony Boy; they're just scaring him. But it goes a little too far. And we know that Johnny's coming after them with the switchblade and we don't see Johnny actively stab Bob. But when the blood starts filling the water above Pony Boy, it's like, oh, it happened. And uh, it's a kind of a cool artistic choice to go with the blood in the water like that instead of actually showing the act of violence. But to see Johnny's reaction afterward, to see Pony Boy's reaction afterward, and you're just like, these are just two scared kids now. And they, they really screwed up. And what do you do? What do you do but run? Because they're mm-hmm. greasers. Right. They already got a strike against them. Yeah. So even though technically it is self-defense, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I have a lot of sympathy for those characters in that moment. So that leads right into my next favorite scene. 
uh, which we've alluded to, and I'm just calling it Dallas takes care of Pony Boy and Johnny because uh, Bill just said it. Pony Boy and Johnny go to their go to, and that's Dally. That's Dallas. And as I mentioned, the hierarchy that's been established, we understand Dallas is kind of the leader here. We know that the hierarchy may change under certain scenarios, but within this small group, within the group of greasers, we understand within this town of Tulsa, there's a larger contingent of greasers, but we're focusing on about seven members of the greasers. And within those seven, we're focusing on three, but really Dallas has a bit more life experience and is two to three years older than Pony Boy and Johnny. And they look up to him. And Dallas is fiercely loyal and takes care of Pony Boy and Johnny as if they were his own, if they were his own family and brothers. They might as well be. So Johnny's murdered the Soch Bob, and they are fearful now. Pony and Johnny go running to a bar of all places to find Dallas. And we know it's past 2 a.m., because when Pony Boy had gone home and confronted his older brother, Derry, Derry's like, it's 2 a.m., where have you been? So we know it's really in the middle of the night. And it's now after 2 a.m., they've committed a murder, they've run to, to this bar, it's still going in the middle of the night, and we see the great Tom Waits make an appearance, who answers the door, and then Tom Waits and goes, goes to get Dallas, and Dallas comes to the door half asleep with no shirt on in the middle of this and immediately, I love this line because Ponyboy says, you know, Johnny killed a Soch. And Dallas immediately goes, what? Uh, all right. Good for you. Let's go. That's how it is in this world. It's that cut and dry. We hate the Soches. If you take one of them out, that's a badge of honor. Congratulations. And we're moving on. And that's how Dallas thinks. That's how his perspective of this world is. It's just that simple. It's rough and tumble. It's kill or be killed. So Dallas takes them in. And as they're walking through this bar and he's walking through his no no shirt on, he's like, he's like, I was half asleep. And he's asking Pony if he's still wet. And he takes them upstairs. Dallas's room is upstairs in the back of this bar. That's where Dallas lives. He lives in this freaking above a bar. He's just a kid. It's crazy. So he takes Pony and Johnny upstairs. I love the set design, the location. It just feels real. We've got a lot of great background activity with the extras where there's a dog coming down the stairs as they're going upstairs. It feels so lived in and very just raw and real and dirty and rough. And so he takes them upstairs to his bedroom and he sits them down or at least Pony Boy down and he gets his shirt off and he hands him one of his flannels. He's like, it's probably going to be a little big on you, but this should work. And then he gives Johnny 50 bucks and a loaded pistol. And Dallas sits down between them and he's already got a plan. Oh, I know. He's already got a plan for him. This is, again, how it is. I love the establishment of just this is what life is like for these poor kids. They've been through the ringer, especially Dallas. That's why they look up to him. He's got the life experience at such a young age already. He's been in jail. He's really tough. And he knows how to handle situations in a pinch. And he says to them, all right, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take the 3.15 a.m. train to Windricksville. You're going to stay low in an abandoned church. And you take the 50 bucks, you hit the local shopping store for some groceries in the morning when there's when it's not packed with a lot of people. I think he says like when it's not hot. Dallas has got some cool lingo within his dialogue. And then in a handful of days, he's going to come out to the abandoned church in Windricksville and check on him. 
great. That's the plan. That's what they're going to do. And you're like, oh my God, these teenagers are going to go on the lamb. They're going to go on the run. And while Dallas is explaining the plan, there's a nice slow push in shot on him. You're like, man, Dylan is commanding the scene. He's taking charge. He is their father in this moment. He is their protector. And you're like, I get it. I get it now. This is how they're bonded. This is the camaraderie. This is the loyalty. And you get Dallas's experience. Dallas is incredibly street smart. He's a rude bully asshole, but he's got balls. He doesn't hesitate to act. And Dallas, I love his character. He's extremely dangerous. He's a problematic dude with a shitty view of the world with good reason. He's not a good guy, but you want him on your side. Yeah, I just love the scene because he takes care of Ponyboy and Johnny. Yeah, I think what makes that scene so frightening is Dally somewhere between 18 and 20. I don't think we really establish how old he is. Right. And the fact that he hears that Johnny has killed someone, doesn't phase him, and he nope. just knows exactly what to do. Yeah, I found it impressive and frightening at the same time. Well said. Yeah, yeah. good call on that scene. All right, for me, for my next favorite scene, oh, big fight scene, the big rumble. Hell yeah, that's what I had next too, of course, man. Yes, yeah, so uh, later in the film, Ponyboy and Johnny, Dally sends them to a church, and that's where they've been staying for the, a couple of days. Dally comes out to check on them, let them know what's going on, goes to take them out to eat. They come back to the church. The church is on fire. You find out there's kids in there. So Johnny, Ponyboy, and Dally all go in to save the kids at church. And Dally and Johnny end up in the hospital because of it. So Johnny comes back. They're held as heroes, but they now know that Ponyboy doesn't have parents. He's going to you know, possibly have to go in a, a foster home. Johnny's hanging on for dear life. Dally's pretty much okay, but he's still in the hospital just to care for his wounds. And then you find out there's going to be the big winner-take-all rumble between Sosids and the Greasers. And everyone's going to be in this fight. So leading the Greasers is going to be Derry, Patrick Swayze, and then leading the Sosids is one of Derry's old friends from football in high school, and he's going to be on the other side. And they're at the playground, and they see all the Sosids cars pull up, and all the guys come out, and they kind of like square off, and they talk about the rules that they're not going to use knives or any of that kind of stuff. And all in the back of their mind, they're hoping they'll hold to the terms of that fight. And next thing you know, Pony Boy takes sucker punch, first one, and then the fight begins, torrential downpour, and everybody's just swinging, kicking, punching back and forth. And at first, it can't really tell who's winning, who's losing. It seems like it's a pretty even fight. And then pretty soon, So starts running off, another So starts running off, another So starts running off, and the Greasers do win the fight in the middle of this downpour. They've taken a beating, especially Pony Boy. I mean, he's got red welt on the side of his face. Yeah. We've got Steve, Tom Cruise. Looks like he broke his nose. They're pretty messed up, but they're pretty excited they won the fight, and that's a big rumble moment. It's classic on a lot of different levels. It's visceral, it's barbaric, and it's simple. Yeah. And this is how they settle their beefs. It's the buildup. This is going to be the, the climactic scene. It's like what's going to happen during the rumble. It's the buildup. It's the lead up to this. We know it's coming. And again, that's where I talk about this sense of dread. And it's interesting because I hadn't seen this film in so long. I thought somebody was going to get killed for sure in this rumble. And that does not happen. Right. I thought a knife was coming out myself. Yeah, for sure. Like somebody's going to break the rules. And I think it's interesting, again, where I'm t saying, you know, how Cherry, 
she is kind of the bridge between the two worlds a little bit because prior to the rumble is when she meets with Ponyboy and she makes it clear what the rules are going to be that the Soshas have agreed to the Greasers' terms that there will be no weapons and they're going to fight fair, basically. And Ponyboy is obviously glad to hear that, but then they have a conversation about this is the line that I mentioned earlier where Ponyboy is like, can you see the sun from the sunset from the south side? It's the same from the north side. I mean, they're all the same. And she understands and agrees, but they're not really the same, are they? That's kind of the interesting thing is that they're still somewhat different. And when it comes to the rumble, more than the rumble itself, I love the lead up because I put myself in their shoes somehow. I, you know, how I, I've mentioned, obviously, I connected to these relationships and these characters in this film. For whatever reason, today I connected to it. And when they are at the Curtis household, that being Pony Boy, Soda Pop, and Daryl's household, you have not just the three brothers, but Steve is there arm wrestling with Soda Pop. It's great because it starts with Pony Boy looking in the mirror with his bleach blonde hair, and he couldn't be more clean shaven, but he's rubbing his chin, asking the other guys, when did you start growing facial hair? Like, when did you start growing a beard? And it's such an everyday, normal, young boy kind of teenager thing to ask. And it's a kind of a vulnerable moment almost in a little bit. And the guys are like, oh, I don't know, 14, 16. And they're like making fun of Pony Boy a little bit. And then Pony Boy comes out into the living room and asks them, do, why do you want to fight? Are you ready to fight? You know, wh- have you, you know, why do you want to fight? And then they're getting ready. They're kind of get, they're just getting jacked up. They're getting ready for the fight. And then you see Daryl, who is just Patrick Swayze as a badass, telling Pony Boy, you know, just kind of, try to lay low or stay back because he's looking a little peaked. He's looking a little ill or whatnot. He's smoking too many cigarettes. They're looking for, again, it's just all this little dynamic and it's all the prep. Like it's all, they're just getting ready. And then they all leave the house. You've got two bit and Steve there and soda pop and Darren, the gang, you know, is all they're walking down the street. And that's what the trailer is. The trailer for this movie, the preview for the movie is that scene, which is taken out of context when they're walking down the street to the rumble. You feel like you're there with him. And that's why Steve, Tom Cruise, is all jacked up. He's getting pumped up and he's hopping around and they're kind of shoving each other around, getting pumped. And they get to the scene and there's the other greasers waiting for them. And they talk to Tim, who's kind of the leader of the other half of the greasers. And they're sitting there waiting for the socias. And you see the socias cars approach. It's all that prep, right? It's the lead up and those shots are great. And then there's that great... It's kind of a side tracking shot that just pans across from left to right of each of the greasers. Every one mm-hmm. of them is there standing, anticipating the fight coming on. And as the, you mentioned this, the Soshas then walk up and it's like the debt agreement. It's just back in the medieval times when the representatives, either the king or some other representative from one side approaches the other side in the middle of the field. They come together. They said, well, you, are you going to surrender? No, we're not going to surrender. They throw down the gauntlet and they agreed, OK, we're going to do this. And it's just they're going to run at each other. Uh, that's how they do it. Pretty brutal. And that's what they do here. But it's with Daryl facing off his old high school football buddy, Paul. Okay. But what I love, my favorite moment is the fact that Dallas comes jumping in. And this is the what starts the entire brawl is you get Dallas coming, letting himself basically out of the hospital, coming, yes. running in and jumping over like a table saying, don't you know, it ain't a rumble without me. And then the sucker punch to Pony Boy and the rumble begins. It's just a great beginning. And then great sound design. You hear the thunder clapping as the fight begins and the rain comes down. You can't have a good outdoor rumble without the rain coming down, which makes the whole thing so much more sexy. 
you get Steve, Tom Cruise, losing his mind, kicking everybody's ass and getting his face punched in. And then I love seeing Swayze doing his fight choreography because it's all just an early audition for the role of Dalton in Roadhouse. And like, yeah, this is exactly. He looks like he's he looks like he's Dalton in Roadhouse. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. I was waiting for him to throw tear out someone's throat. I'm like, oh my god, here it comes. Yeah, or do some fancy kick or yeah, but yeah, the throat rip would have been great. Great scene, man. I'm glad you you uh, touched on it. We had to. I mean, it's it is the Rumble, and I actually, you know, we'll, we'll get into our complaints here in a, just a second. But I was like. Theorize. I wish there was another rumble. I wish the movie had started with the rumble, like we dropped in the middle of a rumble. Oh, yeah. That's where it should, the movie would have started, where maybe something tragic happened and you're just like, oh, man. So that then when this rumble comes on later, you're just like, oh, this is going to mm-hmm. be this is going to be rough. But good, good rumble scene. Did you have anything else for scenes or moments? Uh, I'll save those for my additional thoughts. OK, so for my last it's more of a moment. And it's almost a complaint too. And it was Johnny's letter at the end. I didn't like how the scene played out, to be honest, mm-hmm. but I'd like the letter itself. I totally concur. So Johnny ends up succumbing to his injuries from saving the kids in the church. And um, one of the things that Johnny and Ponyboy did when they were hiding out was Johnny bought Ponyboy a copy of Gone with the Wind because he knew that Ponyboy was a fan and would read the book to Johnny. And then when he was in the hospital, they never finished the book. So he wanted to finish the book while he was in the hospital. Well, at the end of the movie, he gets the book back. And when he goes to look through it, there's a letter. And it's a letter from Johnny. And I'm just going to read the letter. I felt like there was some good stuff in there. Absolutely. And it's pretty short. So it says, uh, Ponyboy, I asked the nurse to give you this book so you could finish it. It was worth saving those little kids. Their lives are worth more than mine. That was the first gut punch when you listen to this thing. Uh, They have more to live for. Tell Dally it was worth it. I'm just going to miss you guys. I've been thinking about it. And that poem, the guy that wrote it, he meant you are gold when you're a kid. Like green. When you're a kid, everything is new. Dawn. It's just... Like the way you dig sunsets, Pony. That's gold. Keep it that way. It's a good way to be. I want you to tell Dally to look at one. I don't think he's ever really seen a sunset. There's still a lot of good in the world. Tell Dally. I don't think he knows. Your buddy, Johnny. And the other gut punch of this letter is Dally is dead. Right. He basically kind of committed suicide because he was so distraught with Johnny's death. He kind of went off the deep end, ends up robbing a convenience store, starts yep. running around town. The cops find him. He pulls an unloaded gun on the cops, and they shoot him dead in the park. Suicide by cop, yeah. So that's what I liked about it. There was, like was the double gut punch. The fact that Johnny thought those kids were worth more than him, and the fact he wants to try to help save Dally, and it's already too late. I just didn't like the way they shot the scene, but the letter to me was very poignant. I totally agree. It's really bittersweet. And the entire suicide by cop scene with Dallas and the lead up to that following Dallas uh, after Johnny dies in the hospital is uh, a favorite scene of mine that I'll touch on in my additional thoughts because gets into the, the message of the film, right? It is the central theme, which is you can look at it from a different, a couple of different perspectives. It is a loss of innocence. This is the loss of innocence. 
or the message being appreciate your youth, live your youth to its fullest and appreciate your youth because it won't last forever. As try to stay gold, you know, and as the poem goes, you know, the dawn, I mean, will turn into night at some point. So, and I think it's funny, you know, we've skipped a whole section of the film, as Bill, you noted, you know, because in our favorite scenes, we, we always kind of skip around in the timeline of the film. But during their, their respite at that abandoned church, Pony Boy and Johnny are bonding and they're, they feel like they're, they're different because they think differently and they're appreciating the moment. And there's a moment when they're witnessing the beautiful sunset. And that's when Pony Boy recites the Robert Frost poem, Nothing Stays Gold. And it's very poignant and they have an understanding of it, but you know who doesn't? And that's Dallas. And Dallas is following a different path. And he has a different perspective of the world because of his personal experiences and the environment he was raised in and what he's existed in. And uh, we see a tragic end there. And it's really effective. And the way they shot it was with a bit of a split screen. So you hear Ralph Macchio's narration. He's reading the letter. You hear his voice, voiceover. But not only that, you actually see him. It's a split screen. You see Ralph Macchio as if he were alive still reading the letter. And it's a little distracting. Just Pony Boy reading the letter and hearing the voiceover instead of seeing Ralph Maggio. I certainly agree with that. I'm still trying to figure out how he wrote the letter. I couldn't help but think, I mean, if we want to move right into complaints, that was the thing I didn't write down, but it was in the back of my head. Because Johnny, unfortunately, has suffered a broken back and severe third degree burns uh, over a great deal of his body and can barely move. I mean, he's in traction. And how the hell was he able to even write that letter? I don't know. Right. All right, so yeah, let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have switchblade holes. Yes, if it does not have those switchblade holes, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. All right, so we kind of touched on that one and how the hell did Johnny write the letter? Part of me was thinking, oh, maybe he dictated it to the nurse. Maybe the nurse wrote it. But you can see it's male cursive writing. Yeah, yeah. So honestly, Bill Bant, I'm going to go into character background. That's usually, you know, or I should say often where my complaints lie because I like to to get into some character background. I always want more. So I'm going to talk about Cherry Valance. That's where my first complaint is. I feel like in a cast full of young men that Cherry Valance, played by Diane Lane, could have been the most interesting character in this film. I thought maybe, and this is a little... On the surface, there would have been a love triangle between Dallas, Cherry, and Ponyboy, because we know Ponyboy's prob- you know, crushing on the very beautiful Cherry, but we understand that Cherry probably would fall in love with the bad boy, Dallas. I thought that could have happened. That would have been a little obvious. But beyond that, there's some of Cherry's personal story that was left on the table, I felt. I'm not saying it. You know, also that this needed to be a West Side Story situation, uh, where the girl from you know one family or the right side of the tracks ends up dating the, the guy from the wrong side of the tracks. But here we have a young woman who knows what she wants and what she likes and who she likes. She's too mature for the ways of this town and ends up maybe breaking everyone's heart in the end. That's my kind of hypothetical way they could have gone with this character. And I think you know the scene between Cherry and Ponyboy when she explains how she knew a side of Bob, the Soch that gets killed, that was her boyfriend. She's explaining that to Ponyboy. You didn't know him like I did. Like she knows a side of him that he was actually a pretty good guy. She sees both sides. She's a little bit more mature. And 
She's just saying these people aren't just one-sided, despite what others may say, feel, or are told by society to think. Everyone has full lives and levels to their being. And we could have really seen that through Cherry, I feel, as if she, you know, if she really is the go-between between, you know, the Sochas and the Greasers and either gets caught up in between and can't choose a side and or just decides to leave. Like that could have been an interesting thing to develop. So I, I wanted to see more of her and I thought uh they could have given Diane Lane a little bit more to do. Yeah, I understand. I, like I said, I need to read the book to find out if maybe she did have a bigger role mm-hmm. in the complete novel. She does have a couple more scenes, but it doesn't touch on anything that you mentioned. Gotcha. It would have been good to see more of how she worked as the bridge between the two groups or per se the spy, how that all kind of came about. Yeah. Just to kind yeah. of get more, a little more background out of her. Yeah, one of my first complaints is... What were the socials doing driving around 2 a.m. in enemy territory like that? That's not mm. a smart move. <laughs> they paid the price thinking they could pick on Johnny and Pony Boy, and then one of them gets killed. But yeah, I was like, why are you even driving around? Drive around your neighborhood. Don't drive around your enemy's neighborhood. You know this could be an issue. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's just instigators, and you're putting yourself at risk. Yeah. Like, did they really think they were going to find them at two in the morning? I mean, I mean, they did, they did. right? But still, right. it's a great point to really go. Let's say, like, go to the wrong side of town, right? To go to the bad side of town, just to look mm-hmm. for somebody that you feel has wronged you because they were hanging out with your lady friends is an awful risk to take. It's a good point. Easier ways to run across them. I would have liked to seen more of Daryl, Derry, Curtis, and the Curtis family, meaning Pony Boy and, and Soda Pop, and their relationship. I believe there is one more scene in the extended cut that where they have a conversation together, but it's touched on in this you know movie how losing their parents had such a profound impact on them, and I could have used maybe a little bit more of Daryl's perspective. I mean, he as a very at a very young age is now in charge. He's the man of the house and has to take care of his two younger brothers as if they were his kids. And that's an awful position to be put in. And I'm not saying that he should have been a furious styles from boys in the hood, like teaching them all the life lessons and how to be men. But he sort of has had that role put on him just by circumstance. And he knows he could lose his brother so easily, especially Pony Boy could lose him to a boy's home. So how does he protect them or how does he help them process their parents' death? How do they do that together, the three brothers process that death? Because we see Pony Boy is dealing with that trauma. He has a dream. You know, he, we see a, it's a flashback, but it's a dream sequence where he sees his parents' car get hit by the train on the tracks, that imagery, and it's awful. It's brutal. So I'm like, oh, this might really play a bigger part in the movie, but it doesn't. And again, I think they could have done more with that. Right. You don't even know if his parents were good people or mm-hmm. part of them's like, thank God they died in that car accident. And, and no kidding. And also, yeah, there's all kinds of feelings that come up. And we understand it's made very clear that Pony Boy feels as though his brother, Daryl's eldest brother, doesn't care about him or just doesn't right. like him. Even stronger. It's even stronger than that. Just doesn't like him. But maybe that's because Daryl has to try to be the father figure. He can't be his best friend. He can't be his brother necessarily. Now he's his father in a way. Let's get into that. That's good stuff. Yeah. And this might be the extended because most of the other friends try to tell Pony Boy that. They're like, look, Mm -hmm. your brother's under a lot of stress. Yeah. He might be taking out on you, but he loves and cares for you and doesn't want anything to happen to you. But he's just not hearing it. He's a 14-year-old kid. I get it. 
we're dealing with, you know, we're watching and following young kids in this movie and seeing their storylines and their their performances. And it would have been nice to get Patrick Swayze in there more. Because mm-hmm. when he's on screen, he shines. I mean, he's a star. Right, exactly. And you're like, this guy's got a lot going on. And you can see it on his face in just the few lines that he has. And especially when Ponyboy has survived the fire from the church and is at the hospital and is reunited with Soda Pop and Daryl, you see how emotional they are. Mm-hmm. And Daryl is crying and gives him a big hug. And he's like, I thought I lost you like we lost our parents. And it's right. like, ah, oh, that would have had so much more weight if we had gotten more of Daryl and his perspective and what he's going through. Right. All right. I'll do two quickies. Hey, go pick up some scissors. If you're going on the food run, buy some <laughs> scissors, guys. Make it easier on yourselves. I can't imagine what it would be like trying to cut hair with a blade. That did not look fun. Oh, no. No. Not at all. A dull blade? Yeah, no thanks. Yeah. Did you have a flashback when he pulled the bread out of the box? Oh, my God. <laughs> totally flashback. It's in the stuff. back of my mind. That's hilarious. From our, our Disney World trip? Yeah. you talking about? Yeah, absolutely. The peanut butter and the bread. <laughs> That's yeah, all we so, got. Yeah, so, that's we got four days, and this is what we got. So just let the audience know for spring break one year, Jason, myself, and our friend Marwan, who we mentioned tons of times on this show, went up to Orlando for a couple of days, and basically we had enough money to get a car to get us there, gas, and park tickets. When it came to food, yeah, we were struggling. So we literally went to the supermarket, bought a loaf of bread, peanut butter and jelly, and a bag of Doritos, and that's what we ate for four days. <laughs> delicious i feel totally like johnny and pony boy in the church oh that's great we love those sandwiches were amazing oh yeah they we were delicious. forward to those sandwiches every day uh that's great man i got a question for you yes when dallas comes to check on pony boy and johnny at the abandoned church and then they go for a drive and get some barbecue sandwiches they come back to the church to get their belongings and the church is on fire there is a group of school kids with their teachers and or chaperones in the field outside of this abandoned church, and there are kids inside of the church as the church is burning. What were those kids doing there? What were those school kids doing there in the middle of nowhere? That was exactly my next complaint. I literally wrote, <laughs> field trip to an abandoned church? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, what is that all step about? on that. Yeah. No, that's okay. It's the same thing. I'm like, why... I guess it's following the book, but it would have made more sense if they were driving somewhere else and saw the fire and then they jump out of the car to help. But the fact they go back to the church, which is in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And there's a bus and they had to break into the church to stay there. So why are those kids there in a bus and how the hell did they get into the church? <laughs> yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. And even the scene where, where Johnny gets stuck in there. I was like, dude, you're just standing there. Shot to the roof. Shot to Johnny just standing there. Shot to the right. roof. I'm like, dude, it's on fire. Get the fuck out. That didn't work for me. Yeah, there's some some issues there. I, I actually had a little bit of a overall complaint with the entire sequence of them being out there at the abandoned church. And this is something our friend Chris Valenziano, a very talented writer unto himself, has mentioned too. It's what happens when you separate some of the protagonists from the main group. When the focus is on like a group of, or an ensemble cast, a group of, in this case, greasers that you're getting attached to, and you there's a certain energy that this film has. And when you separate two of the characters from the group, in this case, Ponyboy and Johnny, things slow down a little bit. 
this movie slowed down for me a little bit during the entire church sequence. I understand how necessary it is. It's adhering to the novel. And there are some relationship development moments between Johnny and Ponyboy that are absolutely necessary. You get the nothing stays gold poetic moment. But if they could have gotten back to Tulsa a little quicker, that may have helped the pacing for me personally. Right. Or see what's happening with the other five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Get back. Yeah. Cut back to them and get to. Yeah, exactly. Right. See what's going on with the murder. Because Dally mentions that the police drag him in and then he sends him on a goose chase saying that Ponyboy and Johnny went to Texas. Right. But then yeah. he had to tell Soda Pop and Dairy he told a lie because then they wanted to go to Texas. Did you have any other complaints? Holes? Yeah, anything just, else? I'll just yeah. do one more because luckily I, I actually watched a video about this after I wrote this down. So this now I need to go to the book to find out. So there's a scene right before the rumble when Randy, played by Darren Dalton, who's also in Red Dawn, he was Bob's best friend, a member mm-hmm. of the Soch. And he wants to have that conversation with Ponyboy. Right. And they sit in the car and, and Randy kind of mentions like, I heard what you did saving those kids. I wouldn't have done that. And they get in the car to talk and they have a conversation. This conversation is going nowhere. It didn't make any sense to me. Luckily, I saw this video afterwards and it kind of explained there's more to it in the book. But I just didn't get the point of it. Why are they talking? What does this all mean? I guess supposedly in the book, Randy tells pony boy that he told the police that johnny acted in self-defense sure but in this moment they just kind of sat and just said nothing's going to change after the rumble and then pony boy just kind of says well you are who you are we don't have to put a label on being a greaser or a soch but just felt like it didn't go anywhere was randy maybe going to talk to the socias and say maybe we don't need to do this rumble you know that's what i thought like this could be the beginning of a truce like hey look a soch and a greaser can actually get together and get along. Why don't all of us do that? I totally get what you're saying. I took it a certain way, but you're absolutely, I think you're right. It leads you down a certain path, but there's no, it falls a little flat because it's not as effective as it could be. You could make um, some different choices here with this scene that could be a lot more interesting uh, where Mm -hmm. the conversation ends up sort of flatlining a little bit because I took it as this is just a scene to establish the fact that we're all the same. Socias, greasers, we're all the same. We're in this together. We deal with our own shit and these labels are bullshit, whatever, but we're all the same. And it's reaching across the aisle, right? It's Randy saying, I respect you. Pony Boy's saying, I'm going to shake your hand. I know you're a human being. We're all in this life together. But at the end of the day, we deal with these circumstances. So it would have been a little bit more interesting if Randy, yes, like you said, was attempting a truce here with Pony Boy, and then let's say the truce falls apart because somebody does breaks the rules somehow, mm-hmm. and then a rumble ensues. But uh, yeah, I agree. It it, it just was kind of like, oh, why are we having this conversation it, if it nothing really comes of it? But I think they were trying to make the point that oh, there's no real bad guy here. We're all the same, right? It's not that black and white as it seems. It really isn't, mm-hmm. and that Randy recognizes that because in the film, you know, as an audience, you know, we side with the greasers. We're made to think the socias are bad guys, but in this moment realize there is no bad, you know, we're empathizing a bit with the socias here. And then I think, you know, again, it's established with Cherry too in the scene between her and Ponyboy when we all see the same sunset. It's the same thing. We're all the same. So they try to drive that point home a couple of times throughout the film. And uh, sometimes it's more effective than others. I understand your complaint with that. That one was not 
as effective as it could have been. Right. I just want a little more out of it. Yeah. All right. Good. Yep. We can move on. All right. Hey, it's that actor. So All this right. segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's Hey, it's that actor. Who do we choose this week, Jason? Well, Bill Band, this week for The Outsiders from 1983, the actor we are choosing is Michelle Mayrink. Michelle Mayrink playing the role of Marsha. Michelle was born on September 1st, 1962 in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. She made her motion picture debut as Marsha. That's Cherry's best friend in The Outsiders. Many other notable roles in the 80s included Valley Girl, Revenge of the Nerds, and Permanent Record. One of her most memorable roles was as Jordan, the non-sleeping fast-talking inventor in Real Genius which we covered back in season one. Oh my gosh, she's awesome and real genius. Michelle retired from acting in 1989, got married, had three children, and opened her own acting school in 2013 in Vancouver. Michelle Mayring. It always amazes me. It's her from Real Genius and Gilbert's girlfriend in Revenge of the Nerds. I'm always like, I can't believe that's the same person. I probably would not, yeah, have recognized her even in, in this, you know, in this, in The Outsiders, mm-hmm. she's got a very small role. Very small. But just by looking, you know, I knew going in that it was her, but still, if I hadn't known that, she looks different. I mean, she takes on a real character role in Real Genius, for sure. And she just, yeah. you know, she's got a different haircut and she's dressed a certain way. She's very, very character-y. Yeah, I was surprised she was only in that one scene that the, the drive-in. I thought we were yeah. see a little bit more of her. All right, time to move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about The Outsiders? All right. Well, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, air director, had not intended to make a film about teen angst until Joe Ellen Misakian, a school librarian from Lone Star Elementary School in Fresno, California, wrote to him on behalf of her 7th and 8th grade students about adapting the book The Outsiders. Here's the quote. We are all so impressed with the book, The Outsiders by Essie Hinton, that a petition has been circulated asking that it be made into a movie. We have chosen you to send it to. Huh. That's what Ellen Masakian had written to Francis Ford Coppola. And approximately 15 pages of children's signatures were attached to the letter written in different colors. And moved by the letter, Coppola read the book and was impressed by the relationships between the Greaser kids. And uh, thus... The Outsiders is made. Cool. All right. Susan Eloise Hinton was only 15 when she started writing The Outsiders. However, she did most of the work when she was 16 and a junior in high school. Hinton was 18 when the book was finally published in 1967. The book has sold over 15 million copies. And Susan makes an appearance in the movie as a nurse. Yeah, that's right. The casting process led to debut or star making performances of actors who would collectively be referred to throughout the 80s as the Brad Pack. However, Mickey Rourke, Scott Bayo, and Dennis Quaid also auditioned for roles but were not cast. Man, heavy hitters, big players. Yeah. Yeah, producer Fred Ross, a frequent collaborator with Coppola, was partially responsible for the film's casting. In particular, he scouted Patrick Swayze based on his performance in the roller skating movie Skate Town USA. Val Kilmer was approached to play Pony Boy, but he turned it down as he was prepping for a Broadway play named Slab Boys. Wow. So I mentioned uh, one of my favorite scenes was the rumble scene. So that took a week to shoot. And in the scene where 
Pony Boy is the first one that takes a punch. See Thomas Howe. That hit was real, and it knocked him out cold. Uh, <laughs> supposedly in the book, it's uh, Jerry who actually takes the first hit in the Rumble, who gets sucker punched. Gotcha. Well, Ralph Macchio stated that during auditions, Coppola wanted everybody to read for a different role. He said that Coppola had all the actors in one room watching each other audition. It's brutal because you're becoming self-conscious of any choices because you're watching reactions based on other actors and watching the filmmakers and how they respond because you're all trying to get the job. So I was able to, I've listened to an interview with Ralph Macchio and he does talk about that. There's a little funny story he tells about how, you know, they're each reading all of the roles and he preferred the role of Johnny. And he actually got a little tired of role, reading other roles and approached Coppola and said, hey, I want Johnny. And then I guess another crew member or casting director went up to Machi and was like, yeah, that's not how this works. You don't go to Francis Ford Coppola, the director of The Godfather, and demand to receive a role. He will decide who gets the role. <laughs> and Machio immediately was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess I should know my place here. Another little Ralph Machio story was that well, the story is uh, these young guys like to play pranks off camera. And uh, while well, they were all hanging out during the three month shoot and at a particular hotel and such. But Ralph Macchio, he took his job very seriously as an actor and he would hole up in his room. So I guess the other guys had nicknamed him Do Not Disturb when they were out playing pranks on one another and goofing off during the day or at night. Ralph Macchio would just go into his room, shut his door and study his lines. Yeah, I heard there was a little tension with him in uh, C. Thomas Howe because Macho always wanted to go over lines. And now Howe being, I mean, he was the youngest in the cast. He, yeah. He's like, I, he's down the lobby trying to beat this high score in Pac-Man. Right. I don't have time to do lines. I, could, I got a cabinet here to crush. That's what's important. Um, so this was funny when I came across this because I found this weird in the movie when it happened. And then when I read this, I was like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. It's kind of cool. So in the scene where Pony Boy, Johnny, and 2-Bit are walking to Johnny's house and then a hat flies into the scene. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. 2-Bit picks it up and says, look, I have a new hat and walks away. The hat belonged to one of the cameramen who lost the hat when a large fan accidentally blew it off his head. Francis Ford Coppola had said to the cast earlier that he did not want to stop rolling no matter what. So the hat stayed in the movie. So good for Amelia there to uh, improvise and walk off with one of the crew's hat. That was funny because I do specifically remember watching the movie today. And when that happened, I was like, that's right. The hat is just blowing across. Right. Because at first I thought it was someone else's hat. And I'm like, wait, no yeah, one had a hat. Where the yeah, hell does nobody's... hat come from? And he just goes with it. Yep. Coppola's father, Carmine Coppola, had written a soaring romantic score for the original release, which at the time Coppola felt may have been the wrong choice, but he was not prepared that to, uh, to say that to him. So uh, by the time he came to recut the movie, Coppola, when he recut the movie for the complete novel re-release, his father had passed, which allowed Coppola the opportunity to balance Carmine's music with music popular in the 1960s, as well as new music composed by Michael Seyfert and Dave Pruitt. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't mention anything about the music because I was kind of like, I don't remember any of these songs in here. And then when I saw that that was all changed too, I was like, oh, okay, that makes a lot more sense. Anything else? I'm done. 
Yeah, one thing I didn't know was that a television series based on the characters of the novel and film aired in 1990. It consists of different casts playing the same characters and picks right up after the events of the film's ending and lasted only one season. Yeah, I didn't know that either. And then I went, I read some of the episode descriptions and it sounds like, yeah, it takes place right after. Cool, cool. What's next? Yeah, let's move on to box office. So The Outsiders was released on March 25th, 1983 on 829 theaters on an estimated budget of $10 million. It grossed $25.7 million domestically. It debuted number two at the box office behind Spring Break, but made over 2000 more per theater than Spring Break did. The Outsiders would hold the number two spot for an additional week and stay in the top 10 for another five weeks beyond that. The Outsiders would be the 27th highest grossing movie in the United States, just ahead of Spring Break in the 28th spot. Now moving on to reviews, The Outsiders was not featured on Siskel and Ebert. However, Roger Ebert gave it two and a half out of four stars, stating the thin narrative material for The Outsiders only adds up to a movie of 90 minutes. And even then, there are scenes that seem to be killing time. Nothing that happens in the movie seems necessary. It's all arbitrary. Leonard Moulton also gave it two and a half out of four stars, stating The Outsiders is highly stylized treatment of S.E. Hinton's book, but never quite connects despite some powerful moments. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 70%, and it has an IMDb rating of 7.0. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. There's some additional thoughts and questions we have about... The Outsiders. Well, my first question is for you, Bill Bant. Bill, Essie Hinton was 15, 16 years old when she wrote the book. Can you remember how young you were when you wrote something that was significant to you on the creative level? Maybe it was outside of schoolwork. Maybe when you first discovered your love for writing. I'm still working on it, Jason. I (laughs) I know that's not true. I mean, I guess it would be my first screenplay for my first student film. Mm-hmm. Sure. The Dead View, when I was all of 18 years old. Yeah, great answer. Yeah, I agree. That's I'm right there with you. It was in my college years as well. So between 18 and 20 for me. And I believe it came during those yeah formative years in film school when you start re, you know creating creative uh, you know projects. And I, but outside even of film, I remember working on an English project where I wrote a creative story about two best friends. One was a cop and one was a criminal, but they, I, I now I'm trying to remember if they were actually brothers, but I think they were just best friends and uh, having to cross the line to uh, bust the other one. I think this was before Heat came out. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. anywho, uh, I remember writing it. And I believe the professor appreciated what I had written, and uh, she took me aside for a little sidebar and talked to me about it. But I was like, oh, you know what? This writing thing, I kind of like it. But yeah, it's all about creating a story and giving life to characters and uh, something that's personal to you. That's where I think I discovered my love for writing was, yeah, during those college years. So Yeah, there was another thing that I did. It was a comic strip, and it was in the vein of a far side. It was called The Cutting Edge, but it was more on like oh, pop cool. culture. I mean, it's stuff that you would see now with like Family Guy or not that I'm saying it was that good. It's a one panel kind of joke, pop culture-y kind of thing. I remember working gotcha. on that. That's cool. For a while. Yeah. Do you have any of that work still 
around? Does it still exist someplace? I think some of it does. I'd love to see that. I'd probably have a couple of panels somewhere. Cool. But uh, here's another question for you, Bill Bant. Yes. What does a rumble accomplish exactly? I mean, I get that part of the point is just to establish your dominance, or is it that the point that it's just about bragging rights, respect? Does winning mean you are on the right side of an argument somehow or a beef? Or is it simply just about releasing testosterone? My question is, it did not appear to me that as if one side would lose their territory or one side was going to be crowned king of the town. Or am I wrong? What I'm asking is, what is the reward for winning a rumble? That is a great question, Jason. And that is why my school, I went to an all-boys Catholic school, and for some reason we would have fights with this other local public school. I would never go because I didn't understand why we were doing it. Didn't understand what it accomplished. Besides the fact, if we won, we won great. If we lost, what the hell was supposed to happen? We're supposed to get out of town. I because <laughs> Even now, 35 years later, I don't understand what the whole point of that shit was. Yeah, I mean, and that that is what's crazy is that, and I think that is sort of the point, is that there's no point. Correct. There is a message in that unto itself, and maybe a little more weight to that conversation between Randy, the Soch, and Ponyboy, when Ponyboy says, you know, no matter what happens in the Rumble, you're still a Soch, I'm still a Greaser, we're still going to be at odds. Nothing changes. Mm-hmm. Nothing changes. So why are we doing this? And that's the whole thing. Is I think with the thing with the rumble is just an even fight because you know going in, okay, we're gonna have these guys as compared to you're walking down the street and five guys jump you from the other school. You're on your own. At least the rumble you got, everyone's got your back. Yeah, and it's I mean part of it can be you're standing up for what you believe in. You're defending a cause. You're defending the fact that the Soches attacked Pony Boy in the park. The Soches are defending. The fact that one of theirs was murdered by a greaser. Mm -hmm. They're making a stand and proving a point, but in the end, it serves no purpose. It's worthless. It's empty in the end. It's just causing pain and anguish and death. And that's the the tragedy of it all. This is the life that they live. I mean, this is the existence that they lead. So I just wanted to make sure I wasn't missing anything and maybe... This we just reestablished the point that no. there's no. Yeah, I point. think it might be missing is some teeth when it's all said and done. Yeah, right. so. yeah. yeah. definitely. No point. Did you have any other thoughts or questions? No, I just you know just like I said at the beginning, I watched the complete novel of The Outsiders, which added 22 additional minutes. And just right. some of the things um, I just wanted to touch on is uh, the movie opens up a lot different in the complete novel. We see Ponyboy actually leave the movie theater that he's talking about when he's writing and he's trying to go home and there's some socials that are following him in a car and then eventually they pull over, get out, um, attack Pony Boy. Uh, one of the socials takes a blade and sticks him in the neck. So if you see that scar underneath on his neck, that's what it's from. It's from a social's blade. And luckily, 2-Bit and Steve and Daryl and... Soda Pop all come in for the rescue. And that's where we really get to meet the whole group and they walk home and then Dallas shows up. And that's really the first time you meet the whole group together. And that seems, you know, adds a couple of minutes to the beginning of it. And then you pretty much go into Johnny and Ponyboy meeting up with Dallas and they go to the drive-in. There's a lot of stuff that's put on the end. So after Dally dies, 
Um, there's the whole courtroom scene where Ponyboy is up on the charges for the murder and you see Cherry go up and testify and you see um, Randy go up and testify. It's a, a very short. It's a lot of intercutting scenes, so you don't really hear them testifying stuff. But then after that, it goes to the school and you see Ponyboy sees Cherry and Cherry ignores him. Ponyboy goes to walk away and that's when one of the teachers comes and stops Ponyboy and says, hey, your grades have been slipping. I want you to write a paper and if you do the paper, I'll, I'll pass you for the year considering everything that's you know been happening. And then he goes home, gets the book, reads the letter, and then starts writing the story. So that's the kind of the stuff that's tacked on at the end. Oh, and then there's a scene I think it's actually in, in some of the television versions, too. It's after the trial when Ponyboy finds out he's not guilty and Derry gets custody of him. Soda Pop, Derry, and Ponyboy are eating dinner. Derry and Ponyboy have another fight. And Ponyboy runs out. And Derry and Soda Pop run after him. And they tackle him in the park. And that's when Soda Pop says, you know, I'm sick of being in the middle of you two fighting all the time. I hate taking sides. This has to stop. I can't do this anymore. And then they all hug and say, all right, this is it. No more fighting. We're going to get along as a family. That was a good scene. So I think the television version and the complete novel version, you would see that scene. So that's, yeah, that's part of the, the 22 minutes that you see. And a lot of it's a little bit, little bit stuff here and there that they threw in. Thanks for breaking that down. And it does make me very much want to see the extended cut, the complete novel, as it's called. Uh, which I think is kind of a cool title for the director's cut, if you will. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, that scene I would have liked to have seen in the original between the brothers, as you described there at the end. So yeah, thanks for for, uh, letting us in on the deleted scenes or added scenes thereafter. Yeah, I think now on the new versions, I think you have the option to watch both. That's cool, man. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything else? Yeah, I was just going to make one other point here that This is just an additional thought for me personally. Originally, I had recalled that the story was sort of about Ponyboy. I didn't know how much, but Ponyboy and Johnny. And then upon this rewatch, it just really stood out to me that Dallas really has a through line in this film, that he very much is, as we've stated, a protagonist, but the story is very much about Dallas as well. And I mean, there are two tragedies, Johnny's death and Dallas's death. This is a very sad movie, and luckily Pony Boy gets out uh, as much as you can say gets out. But so that was a realization for me, and for me, one of my favorite scenes I didn't mention earlier, for, just for the sake of time, but I'll mention it here very briefly is what I call Dallas unravels, and you had sort of described it already, Bill. But when we see Johnny pass away at the hospital. It's interesting because the focus is mainly on Dallas's reaction. Mm-hmm. And Dallas just looks at the empty vessel that is now Johnny lying in the bed and says something to the effect of, this is what you get for helping people? Nothing. You get nothing. And Dallas is absolutely despondent, absolutely distraught. And of course, the camera does turn to Pony Boy, who is in tears, just standing there. But Dallas is lost because he had such a, I mean, this is my take, is that he had such a dark you know, view of the world. And here's Johnny, who became a hero right in front of Dallas's eyes when Johnny went into the burning church to rescue those kids. And then Dallas was forced to follow and became a bit of a hero himself and did something good himself because of what the example that Johnny had set. And this is what ends up happening. Just 
tragedy and death. And that's what Dallas is used to. And he almost probably almost thought there was some good in the world. But now this really shut the door on that and shut the coffin lid on Dallas because Dallas exits the hospital. He pulls his unloaded gun on an innocent bystander walking into the hospital. He goes to the store and he's rifling through magazines and the store owner or clerk is looking at him saying, hey, you're going to buy that. And then he picks up one of the magazines, rips it in half, goes right to the clerk, pulls the empty gun on him and the clerk ends up shooting him. And this is where I loved the visuals because it's sad and the music is great here. Carmine Coppola's score here in the original version where you have an injured Dallas running down the night streets and calling Derry and saying, I need help. And Daryl immediately, of course, you see the bond immediately. Daryl doesn't even ask. He knows he's probably committed a crime. He has. Dallas admits to holding up the shop and uh, Daryl says, just meet me in the park. When Daryl hangs up the phone, he's like, we got to go meet Dallas. We got to hide him. We got to hide him. And they run out after him. And it's just so sad because the cops catch up to Dallas. You hear the sirens. You see the cars. Dallas has no chance. He runs into the park and you see the fog. The lighting's wonderful. It's a beautiful scene. It's a beautifully tragically shot scene where Dallas is just gunned down by the cops because he's just flailing his empty gun and but the cops don't know that. So they shoot him dead. And in the midst of while the shots are going off, you see the group of the other greasers, Daryl and Ponyboy and, and uh, Steve and or 2-Bit, you know, are coming down and they're screaming, no, no, no. It's awful. And then at the very end, you see uh, Dallas in the middle of the street and he, fall, and he turns over and you see the gunshot in his chest. And my only complaint here is that they don't hold on that shot. It cuts away really quickly and you don't get a real reaction from the guys standing over the dead Dallas. But I just wanted to call that out because I think Matt Dillon is a standout in this movie. And to have the the juxtaposition between the hope of Pony Boy's character and the message there, and then just the total opposite extreme, uh, the tragedy and despair of Dallas, his character, uh, the darkness there is really impactful, was for me at least on this rewatch. Yeah, he is a standout character in the movie. I totally agree. Dallas is one of those guys. I don't know if you've, I mean, a lot of us come across these characters early on, unfortunately, especially like in the teenage years where you see maybe someone from the wrong side of the tracks has just been dealt a bad hand and you look at him and you go, I'm I'm worried that I think this is going to end bad for this guy. And then it does. Yep. All right. Let's move on to our rating. So on a scale of one to five blades. What you give the outsiders? I gave it uh, three and a half blades, man. Three and a half blades. This cast is undeniably great. This world of Tulsa, Oklahoma, circa 1965 is fleshed out. The setting, the circumstances of a found family of greasers on the wrong side of the tracks, the emotional life in the Band of Brothers and their bond feels real to me. I really like the inventiveness and some of those creative takes within the filming. Some worked, some didn't. The writing is pretty solid to me. Uh, some great lines. Uh, I do think the theatrical cut should have been longer, but Dylan, Macchio, Lane, all standouts for me, especially Dylan and, and Lane. And ultimately, yeah, the film is still effective because it moved me still today. And uh, now, thanks to you and the research, I want to watch The Outsiders, the complete novel. So three and a half blades for me. All right. I'll let you borrow my copy, which used to be Marwan's copy at some point. All right. Thanks. Yeah, for me, um, I'm only giving it three blades. And the appeal for me for this movie is just the cast and just to see where they all started 
this definitely makes me now want to go get the book and read the book and see exactly what I'm missing. Felt like there was there was just this disconnect. I just didn't like Coppola's choices on how he shot this or trying to go for that going with the wind feel watch the complete novel one i still felt like stuff was missing so Mm -hmm. three for me fair enough all right so that about wraps it up for this week's episode as always thank you so much for listening please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform give us a review and rate us to learn more about our show you can visit us at all 80s next week we'll be discussing enemy mine starring dennis quaid and lewis gus jr we hope you can join us stay golden everyone we gotta win that fight tonight we gotta get even with those socias Let's do it for Johnny, man. We'll do it for Johnny. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.